Welcome to the 10 Second Podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey with the Quinnipiac men's ice hockey team. In our last episode, we talked about how the Quinnipiac men's hockey team goes Division One. They joined the ECAC conference, and the university built a new building on top of a mountain. There was no one who had a closer look at the national championship at ice level than our next guest. Joining us now on the 10th Second Podcast from ESPN, with playing roots from the Philadelphia area, is Colby Cohen. Colby, thanks for joining us. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. I, I uh, It was a very exciting Frozen Four this year, so I certainly, uh, certainly had a good seat to, to take it all in, as you alluded to. You certainly did. You probably, you know what's coming, but I mean, there are very few overtime goals in the NCAA National Championship game, but one of them came from you in 2009 against Miami of Ohio. And so we're just going to play it for a second, of course, uh, to just share with everybody. Going back for it, the battle. Roder couldn't get it out of there at the point. They'll go back and forth with it. Lined up, shot, deflected, score! The, the comeback was dramatic. Right, the third period, two um, goals know, in the last we, three minutes or something, right? The last minute of the game, we scored two. Um, and, you know, then, then we're in the locker room getting ready for overtime. And, and you know, we, we were very confident. Our team was confident that year. We, we held the number one position almost the entire season. Um, you know, we might have fallen out of the first spot once or twice, but it was a very, very consistent year. I think we lost five games or something like that. We had a really, really talented team deep. We had a great mix of players. Um, so many guys that could, could hurt you. You know, like if, if Colin Wilson was having an off night, Nick Benino was on. If Benino was off, you know, Yip was on. And, and you know, Matty Gilroy was the was the Hobie that year. Uh, Colin Wilson probably could have won the Hobie that year. He probably should have won the Hobie that year if he wasn't an underclassman. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was just a, a really, really um, phenomenal team, honestly. And, and, yeah, sure, I got the goal in overtime. Um, you know, obviously a little bit of a fluky bounce. Um, but I, earlier in the game, I, I had hit a crossbar, so I was kind of feeling confident like I, I could get one by the goaltender. Um, and I don't really remember once that puck went in. Uh, <laughs> it's a blur. You know, I, it's, it's all, honestly, the next thing I probably can remember is, is like being back at the hotel Um you know getting greeted by all of our fans because i i don't i don't really remember the the locker room after the game i i kind of remember when i first saw my parents in the concourse after the game but it, it was just such an adrenaline rush that i i really don't i don't remember it well because it just was so emotionally overwhelming um uh, yeah, it was it was quite a time. So, how do you transition from professional hockey player to broadcaster? How does like when do you have that thought in your head, and then how do you get to the point where you are today as a lead analyst for ESPN? Yeah, so yeah, I never really. I just luck, honestly. Like I, I think you need luck pretty much, and then you need to you know kind of be willing to work at it and and realize that. Um, you know, just because you were able to play doesn't mean you're able to really talk about it in, in a friendly way where people can understand it. So 
Honestly, I started uh, I started doing some college hockey stuff at New England Sports Network when I was done. Actually, while I was still playing, I was just injured. And um, honestly, just was like, this is fun. I enjoy this. Never really saw it as something I was going to do full time. Um, so do you did work with like Jack Edwards and those guys? I never actually didn't ever work with Jack. Okay. I worked with Brick on the Bean Pot a couple yep. times. Okay. Um, but like I'd work with Tom Karen, who's an, a New England sports legend. Uh, actually, the first game I ever called in the booth was with Tom Karen, um, who's a, who's a great friend and mentor and and you know just salt of the earth type of guy. Um, you know, just does everything. Red Sox. I mean, there's nothing Tom Karen can't do. So did some stuff with Tom, did some stuff with um, Jameson Coyle, Adam Peller, and kind of just sort of everything. Did some studio work for some bean pots, hockey East, this and that. Do you write a letter to them? Like, how do they know that you're, in, you, you're engaged? Is that just because of your BU experience? Yeah, so I if I if I think if I think really hard back, I think the way it sort of transpired was um i got invited to a like a 5k charity event um in boston benefiting something and steve garabedian who's one of the producers at nesson um been there forever he's like a feature producer he does everything for nesson we were talking and he was like oh like you're around you're not doing anything like you want to do a want to come try some college hockey stuff and i was like yeah literally and that's like how it started and i got one show and then they asked me to come for another and they started giving me feedback and howard zakowitz um zakowitz was was one of the executives there and he started giving me really good feedback and more opportunities and and um i did that for a year and then the phone rang and it was um you know John Vasallo from ESPN, and he's like, "Want to do the want to do the NCAA tournament first round?" Uh, I said, "Sure." I had maybe done one or two games prior to that, and it didn't go well. I was absolutely dreadfully bad in the first NCAA tournament I ever did. Um, I'm shocked I even got invited back for the second year. To be honest, uh, I think John Vasallo kind of stuck his neck out for me, um, and brought me back that second year and like after I had like done film study and worked with some people and it just sort of started to, to snowball from there. The second year I did that. And then after that, I got asked to do radio by Westwood one for the frozen four. Um, after that, my role at ESPN started to kind of develop and I got asked to do um, some more regular season games. And then it was, all right, let's do a trial run of you between the benches during the regular season they liked the way it looked. I got, you know, a frozen four. Um, I was got invited to do the Olympics for, for uh, NBC Sports Radio. Um, started doing flyers stuff for a couple years in the studio. It, it it was like a snowball, no joke. I mean, it was like kind of, yeah, you know, people reach out. You might reach out. Someone might recommend you. And, and it just sort of ha starts happening from there. And, and um, I've just been pretty lucky with it, to be honest. I mean... I think you just always have to be prepared and be willing to sort of put in the work. And, and if you do that, I think the rest you can kind of work through and figure out. And I think the spot that you're in between the two benches, I think really provides, you know, I know they've done that in the NHL as well, as well but it really gives 
the viewer and the listener to what's going on because you have feedback. Whoever's in that spot has is can provide feedback that you just can't provide uh, at the other location in terms of what's really going on ice side in terms of what's being said. You know, your comment about I think it was the there was a Michigan player. I think it was Hughes or something who was perhaps having some uh, issues with a garbage issue, garbage can in the in, in the first game in the NCAA um, semifinal game. Um, it, it, there's just color that is added to it that that gives the listener and the viewer a much better experience. And that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. You know, I, I have a seat that no one else has. And my job is to um, bring everybody at home to that spot. And, and that's sort of the way that I approach it. Rather than always trying to be X's and O's heavy, I'm more trying to find interesting things that I think are such like nuanced items in hockey that, um, you know, people don't realize. And, and when it comes to players' health, I'm always a little hesitant, especially at the college level make sure a guy's okay before I'm going out over the air talking about someone who's puking on the bench or uh, something that might be happening. Um, so, you know, like I said, I, I still look at myself as a former player. So I'm, I try to really be respectful and think about the players and make sure you're protecting players and not just, you know, doing insane things just to, to get a rise out of the audience. But it is the best spot because I'm between the two benches. I can look on either bench. I can see what the coaches on either team are saying. I see the conversations players are having with officials. Um, it's just, it really is. It's my favorite spot. Uh, this year, um, you know, I we did the first round of the tournament. I was upstairs because there is no between the bench spot in Bridgeport, um, which I, I mean, I just don't enjoy it anywhere near as much. Um, obviously, sometimes you got to do it. And then even in the Frozen Four on the double header. We had some conversations about me moving upstairs for the second game. Uh, Barry only did the first game and not the second game, but we just kind of came to the conclusion that we could make it work between one up and one down because Butchie and I just have developed such good chemistry over the years that we don't need to be looking at each other to know when when one is talking, when the other is talking. And, and there's a lot of cues, nonverbal cues in broadcasting um, in those types of situations where you can look at the guy and make a hand gesture or they can see you're running out of air, whatever it may be. So, um, you know, I always push to be between the benches and I'm really thankful that our producer, Josh Hoffman, you know, sees the value in that because ultimately it's his call. Uh, him and Andy Green probably make that call together. Andy Green is sort of the executive producer for the whole project. Uh, Josh Hoffman, who's one of the, not one of, is the most talented producer I've ever worked with. Him and Bob Frateroli, they do that package for us and they are so talented at what they do. I mean, they've done college football national championships. They've done Stanley Cups. I mean, they've done some big, big time stuff. So um, we're lucky to have those guys. We're lucky they see the value in it. Uh, next year, um, you know, I, I think the regionals, are uh, there i think the region the arenas some have them some don't so like we're always looking at it because like i said i, I do think espn really sees the value in me being down there and personally will continue to push to be down there yeah no like i said i think you do a great job there um the let's talk about your access to players and to coaches uh from from an espn perspective uh, especially for the ncas so you obviously you did all four of Quinnipiac's games, right? So you did the the two in Bridgeport, obviously, and then the two at 
at Tampa. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about how you guys get access and get information uh, to players, to what's going on, so that you can provide that to the listener? So yeah, we, we get a ton of access. Um, before the regionals, we spend a whole day with players and coaches. Um, you know, we, we get meetings with any players we want, groups, individuals. We get to meet with the coach for 30, 40 minutes. Um, you know, some coaches are a little more generous than others. I think uh, Rand and, and John Butchergrass have a, have a pretty long-standing relationship. So it made it a little bit easier for us with, with Quinnipiac this year. Um, you know, just, just having the access to it, but yeah, we talked to the guys, you know, this year we just so happened to be staying in the same hotel at the regionals as the Bobcats. So we, we were, you know, talking with the coaches every night, seeing them for dinner, you know, after dinner, everybody's kind of hanging in the hotel restaurant and bar. So we're just, you know, having all these opportunities to really get to know one each other, one another. And it just gives us an opportunity to, to sell the university and really talk about the university and the players and the people that run it. It gives us comfort level with, with what's going on. You know, we don't see every single regular season game. You know, we see a number, but we don't see every single one. And and just, you know, having that access to those guys ma- makes all the world of the difference. And I think one thing um, that I've really noticed with, with Rand over the years is as his profile has grown, well, he's earned more opportunities. You see him with the world junior teams. You see him with the world championships. You just you see him getting invited as a very premier level coach within the U.S. hockey um, landscape. And I think as his his profile has grown, he's gotten more and more generous with his time with the media, um, especially with us. And, and I, it doesn't always work that way. Some guys, as they get bigger and more well-known, they've got less time to do the interviews, to, 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 to have that beer, to, to talk about things. They get more closed off. Some coaches can be really paranoid about about talking. The amount of questions that I asked Rand in the NCAA tournament when we were sitting around just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze a little bit about hockey-related questions. Hey, well, how do you handle this situation? What are you doing if your team is up or down? Or what, what, what do you prefer? Not necessarily that I'm prying for Quinnipiac information, but just want to hear his philosophies on coaching and things that I might be able to learn and pick up and then use within my broadcasting, you know, whether it's for an NHL game, a college game or whatever. So um, we really get a lot of access. It's really helpful. This year was so perfect because we stayed at the same hotel as them, even more access. We ran into them in Tampa quite often. Um, it, it was, it was a, it was a perfect storm. And then I, everyone knows how it ended and, and, um, you know, the, the, some of the, the cool moments that, that were shared um, a- after that goal happens and goes in an overtime. And, and honestly, I don't think that moment or that interview goes the way it does with Rand if we didn't spend all that time together over the course of a few weeks. Um, and then even after that, got to see him the night at, that night after during the celebration, we so happened to be at the same place. You know, and and you, you were know, at he, American he, Social. We were at American Social. Oh, I, didn't see I think we we got there a little bit before you guys, and we were kind of in a different spot. And when we were leaving, Rand like invited us in, um, Butchie and I to come in. And again, like 
he had a million people who wanted to, to, to a piece of him, and and he spends 15, 20 minutes like smiling and cheers in, and uh, again, it, it just kind of shows you, you know, that he 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 kind of uh, sees the value in growing the game and you know bringing us on the inside. So the whole the whole experience this year, it, it was it was probably the best one that I've got to be a part of as a broadcaster. I'd like your feedback on Zach Metza, in particular this pass across to Tellier, um, uh, that we're going to show you right now. Brindamore's still out there, now he'll change. Metza keeps it in. Puck bouncing around for the Bobcats, goes in front, score! I mean, that was such a big goal because you you you're on the ropes, you're down by a couple of goals, This this Minnesota team you know, high flying, they can score goals. And that's what your captain has to do. Your captain's got to make a play. I mean, he, he holds the blue line, which, which takes courage. I mean, to, to sit there and be a defenseman and be flat footed and, and have the, the wherewithal and, and the, the, the gumption to hold that blue line, take a bobbling puck down with your glove. I mean, this was a big time play. This is what you talk about in a championship when big time players make big time plays that, you know, the coaching staff was probably closing their eyes, worried this puck was coming out of the zone and it was going to be an odd man rush the other way. It, it was, that was a big time play. No, I think, right. And, and I think so much of the focus, right, is on Collins goal and rightly so. And so much of it is on Jacob's goal, which again, rightly so, but the contributing factors of the other players make this obviously a team game and it's it's exactly that play, you know. And, and I've watched this game probably twenty times to to find <laughs> out the little nuances. You know, I'm not necessarily a hockey guy per se, but just to get the little nuances and it's things like that. It's Jake Johnson, man. Like I I tell people all the time, I that defensive player Jake Johnson uh, for spending one year at Quinnipiac here yeah. in the Michigan game and the Minnesota game, like that guy doesn't get enough credit. I mean, he is. I mean, he played his butt off. So many little plays lead to these types of championships and I can think back to when we won nobody really talks about um, everybody talks about my goal but the reality is is I never have a chance to, to have that if Chris Higgins doesn't make a play to, to Gilroy who makes a play to Benino and Brandon Hitt makes a play to keep a puck alive and then Zach Cohen gets the first goal in the comeback so those are plays and, and things that, that people will forget other than the people on the team and, and surrounding the team. But that was a big-time play by Mets. I mean, it, it big-time play. So Rand doesn't pull the goalie immediately, but pulls the goalie with about 36 seconds left on the, on the penalty. Um, and you're right there when he calls a timeout. And I think, I think at the time you said something like, you love the timeout here to get focused for the final 36 seconds of the, of the game, uh, excuse me, of the, of the power play. Um, were you focused on – were you looking at Rand most of that time during the timeout? I'm usually – during a timeout like that, I'm usually like looking to see whose bench I have a better vantage point on because depending on how um, the players crowd around and who is doing the instruction, sometimes it's an assisting coach, sometimes it's the head. So I'm basically just seeing who can I – who do I have the best vantage point on and then what can I relay back to the audience that's – that's going to be useful, but also respectful. Um, you know, I'm not trying to sink anyone's ship with, with what I'm talking about between the benches. So, 
Uh, for me, I just remember how composed Rand was for most of that game on the bench. Like, he had a game plan. He stuck with his game plan. He was confident in his game plan. And I got to be honest with you, he outcoached Bob Motzko. Um, he did. I mean, I watched him make some, some adjustments throughout that game on the bench. They tweaked their forecheck. They tweaked their neutral zone. They went from passive to aggressive to pass. And Minnesota never really made adjustments. And and I think like that that's something that won't be written about. Um, but you saw Minnesota didn't get a lot of chances the second half of that game. They sat back. They were passive. They didn't change. You know, they went to a very passive neutral zone. Uh, the Bobcats started getting pucks in a little bit deeper. They started making more plays at the blue line, hanging on to it a little more. It was almost like Rand gave them the green light. Okay, guys, let's hang on to the puck a little bit more. We can make some more high-risk plays, but let's stay within our structure. So I think uh, he probably gets a little more credit than than is talked about based on some of the adjustments that he was able to make throughout that game. Yeah, some of the video that, you sh- that ESPN showed um... – in terms of Rand at the timeout. I mean, he clearly had command of the room, right? He clearly had command of his players. He was instructing their players. They've practiced the six on four. They've practiced the six on five. He had he wanted to get his first line of rest so they could get out there and be prepared for the next, whatever, two and a half minutes, whatever it was at the time. Um, and so it, it was really evident. And then, so Colin obviously scores the goal, uh, which, you know, obviously is great for Bobcat Nation. Um, and then coming out of overtime, right, that goes back to the studio at ESPN. There's some commentary back at the studio. And then it comes to the three of you. And, uh, I mean, it is, it's probably very unique that you have somebody who scored a goal in overtime to win a national championship as an analyst right next to both coaches and I just want to, if, if for our listeners, if, if you want to understand what great is, I mean, you have to listen to this with, with, with Colby because the way he talks about what to expect in overtime, which is essentially the question he gets, here's his response. Colby, you've been there, man. You've done it. What's it like as these players begin overtime? Exciting. That is the word that comes to mind. You want to be the guy who makes the play. You got to want the puck on your stick. And everything, as Andrew Raycroft said, has to be hard and towards the net. I mean, it's perfect. I mean, it, it, it really illustrates that, you A, that you know exactly what is happening. I mean, forget how the play developed, right? I mean, okay. But you were been there. You've you've hunted the puck. You've shot the winning goal for a national championship. You know how the players are feeling inside. Both benches have an opportunity. I mean, it's just so. And you have to. What everybody doesn't understand about broadcasting is you don't have a minute. You've got like ten seconds. You got to get that in because the game's about to start. And nobody nobody else appreciates that, right? But that's the length of time that you have to get that in there. I just think it's so well done. I'm grateful of your, you know, your praise. And I will give some credit to Josh Hoffman because I do remember, you know, you don't have a lot of time. And so they're, they're saying, get it down to Colby. Um, you know, they want to hear from me in that moment. And, and, and honestly, it's, you, you, you think back and exciting is what it is. Like you have an opportunity to win a championship, something that it, it's so rare. And you have an opportunity to be the hero to win that championship. And I just remembered sitting in the locker room in Washington, D.C., thinking, I'm scoring. I'm getting the goal. I'm excited. Like I, I'm going to be remembered forever for this. And 
those are the, the players you you want the guys who 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 think they're going to go out and score the goal, who want to go out and score the goal or make the play that scores the goal. And um, you know, as as a broadcaster, you also want the the atmosphere in the building was incredible, and and our team in the truck of of Frat and Josh, like they wanted the noises, the sounds, the audience, they wanted all that. So we try to be quick and and get out of that uh, in overtime. As an analyst, the one job you have is to stay out of the way. You want the play-by-play guy to do his thing. You want him to have time to set up the face-off, say who's on the ice, and just, you know, Butchie, he just, he's so excited. He's such an exciting listen, Butchie, because he loves this more than he loves anything. And so uh, I wanted to be quick, and I wanted to give it back to him and give him time to get this thing set up and get ready for overtime. Little did we know how quick overtime would be. (laughs) So now what happens? I mean, I know what happens on the ice. What happens in your ear? What happens from a television perspective? So in my ear, you know, crowd noise, mayhem, butchy, score, craziness. And look, the first couple seconds of the period, I'm generally just like getting situated. I'm making sure I got my monitors are all good. You know, you're just kind of you're getting ready. It's like uh, you're playing. You're just you're getting yourself ready for a period. And so the minute that that goal goes in, I don't even wait for replays. So I really don't get the greatest like i saw it one time live and then that was it because you don't start showing the replays right away because it's all about faces and reactions and crowd and coaches and so what i'm doing the minute that goal goes in i toss my headset off i take my earpiece which is like hidden under my jacket i get my earpiece in my ear i start scrambling to look for the microphone that's somewhere in the booth with me and i'm getting ready to get out on the ice and do an interview with Rand Pecknold. Um, and I start thinking in my head, like, okay, like, you know, this is an important interview. Make sure you, you know, you're composed because you're, you're riding the excitement of this game. I mean, we just saw an incredible hockey game, an overtime goal. You got to kind of recompose yourself and like get ready for an interview. And so, um, I really didn't get to see the goal in detail until later when we kind of got back to, to to the hotel and then we went to the bar and then we were watching it on the on I think on Butchie or my cell phone just because like I said right after the game it, it was like okay hey, time you got it you got to do interviews you got to get your earpiece and all this so um, you know it, it was like oh my god this is over already this is so perfect we got a overtime game that ended right away so we're not going to be here all night you know this is a this is the perfect ending and is it a pro move for sneakers on the ice versus uh sold shoes that you could slip and fall over because i noticed this you know she got your kicks on so it's yeah like, that's got to be Listen, like when the- you're when you're standing on, you know, when you're when you're standing like that for for double header, you know, we're at the we're at, on the Frozen Four first night. We're at the rink. We get to the game two and a half hours early. There's time in between. I mean, we're there for like eight hours, nine hours. So like, I'm not gonna walk around in, in loafers. I, I got orthotics in. I got sneakers on. You know, I'm I'm built for comfort here. And if you don't like how it looks, well, take that up with the people who hire me. You know, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, and so uh, the moment to actually do an interview has arrived. And uh, as you watch Rand get off the ice, or excuse me, off the bench, you're standing there ready to go. 
Colby Cohen with the winning coach. At long last, Colby, he gets it done. Well, Rand, you made this program Division I in 1999. Nobody's won more games than you in the past 10 years. Now you're going to hang that banner at your home rink. What does it feel like for you right now? I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying not to cry. I, I don't, I don't think I can do this. Uh, just proud. <laughs> just awesome, awesome. Sorry, I can't, I can't. I need a hug. Give me a hug. Okay, so let's talk about the hug. Legendary hug. <laughs> oh, it's too funny. Okay, so, so I'm gonna set it up first. So when I, when we talked to Rand, we, and we talked to him for like two and a half hours. I said, Rand. I searched the internet, and you know the internet never lies. I said, do you realize there are 16 types of hugs? There's the bear hug, <laughs> there's the friendly hug, there's the romantic <laughs> hug. I said, how best would you describe the hug with you and, with you and Colby? And he, he immediately deflected it and said, well, you know, I know Colby. I've known him. You know, I, I've see, you know, I see him in the restaurants. I see him in the da-da-da-da. I was like, oh, okay, Rand. I said, so in that moment, right, there's just so much emotion that's just flowing through him, um, right, as is flowing through Jacob and every, on the whole team, everybody that's, uh, that's scored in the whole nine yards. But that's got to be a first for you, no? It was emotional for me, honestly. I mean, that that's the, the, the cool part is is that, um, you know, almost getting to be a part of that moment with them w w was really cool. Um, and uh, I, I was thankful for it, to be honest, because it almost gave me a, a flashback moment personally to when, when the, uh, our team won in, in 2009. And um, we do know each other. Uh, you could see the emotion. The question, honestly, I didn't even get the question out completely because, you know, the story goes that he basically started the program in a broom closet. And, and I, I forgot to add that. Um, but it, it shows you how great of a moment that is for these guys, for the coaches, the players. And, and I remember sharing those types of hugs with my coaches, with my equipment staff, with my teammates, with my parents. They were some of the, the most emotional hugs that I've ever had because, you know, when you're a high-level athlete, it's you don't do it alone. And everybody says that, and it's cliche, but it's true. He was just having a moment of emotion that overcame him. And this is a guy who's a very composed guy, very composed guy. This is not, you know, a guy who, who is, is an emotional roller coaster type of guy. Very calculated very very calculated and to see his emotion get the best of him really did the same thing to me which is i mean i wasn't going to leave him hanging i went right in for it and was like yeah come on get in here big guy like let's do this um which was funny because it ended up on sports center top 10 i mean it was all over the place and all my i mean the amount of text messages i got about the hug from people with espn and college nhl i mean when i got back to chicago Luke Richardson was like, yeah, I'm not going to hug you after a game. You know that, right? So um, it, it was amazing. It, it was it was such a great moment for him. I was happy that I got to be there for the moment in a supporting cast of a role. And, and it was just cool. I mean, those are raw sports moments that you just don't get in hockey that often. Hockey is, is a is – a, is, 
guys just don't show emotion. You know, this is the one time a year they'll show some emotion is when you win and when you win like this. Underdog, come from behind, overtime, Cinderella type of stuff, you know? I mean, not in the sense of like, this was not a, a David versus Goliath matchup. This was the two best teams all year facing off for a championship game. Okay. But come from, it just, it was, it was everything you want. And, and Rand had been there and Rand had been there twice before and hadn't gotten it done. Right. And, and it's never not, know it, if you're going to get back. hundred percent hard. The best teams don't always get there. Luck, health, bounces you need all of those things to win a championship in in single game elimination you you do so um i gotta tell you as a broadcaster it might be my favorite moment that i've ever been a part of as a broadcaster i mean it, it really really might i mean it was really unique and i doubt i'll ever get into a moment like that again i, I really don't i really it, it was cool and i i sent him a, a long text message i heard a couple days later and and just said it was cool to be a part of your moment and it was his moment, not my moment, but it was, I was appreciative that to be a part of it, even if it was on, you know, not scripted or, you know, unpredictable or whatever, because it, it took me back to my moment. And, and it's hard to relive moments like that in your life because they're, they're so raw and so emotional and, and so rare. Colby, you did a great job. I appreciate the time you spent with us today. It's uh it's an amazing run for Quinnipiac, but uh, the way that your team at ESPN broadcasts it, I think uh, kudos to all of you. I think you had a, close to over over a million viewers a lot of the yeah. time for a college well, we, hockey game for for twelve what's a twelve year record or something like that. That yeah. was, was that's awesome. That's great for we, college hockey. We love it. My thanks to Colby Cohen for joining us here on the Ten Second Podcast. production crew is Justin Morosky, who is our producer and audio engineer. Jillian Catalano is our social media coordinator. David DeRoche handled the audio mastering. I'm Keith Woodward, and I'm your host. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the 10th second, and also follow the podcast account at QU Podcasts. On our next episode, we're going to talk about the Heroes Hat. On March 1st, 2002, Quinnipiac wins the first ever Heroes Hat, following a 6-2 win over the University of Connecticut. The Heroes Hat was established in honor of those who risked or lost their lives following the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. It remembers Joseph Mescali, a firefighter at Staten Island 5, father of Quinnipiac alum Chris, Jen, and Katie. On the next episode, we talk with Chris.